in July, I think Pastor Jerry walked down to my office and said, hey, Pastor Scott, we need a theme for the Christmas banquet. Well, in July, I mean, I said, okay, let me think for a minute. And, um, and you know, was it hard to, to come up with this, that the light broke through the darkness? As I began to think, I'm not sure we all understand how dark it was. Where the world laid in that time when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared. And so I said, let's, let's run with that. And I think maybe I'll go back into history particularly in between the, New Test- the, Te- the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't know how many of you know what took place. There was a little over 400 years, what we call the 400 years of silence. And in those years, there's much history that takes place that helps us understand just how dark the world was. But when Christ came, it was an amazing thing. I want to just start there because it's called the Pleuratma, the Pleuratma. And Pleuratma comes from the Greek word to mean fool. And so many theologians and and early theologians, as they longed for the coming of Christ and even after that early church, they called this the fullness time, the time of fullness. This is what history was created for. I want you to understand that. This is what history was created for. It was created for the coming of Christ. God was preparing the whole world for the coming of Christ. Of his son. But it was dark. These were difficult times. These 400 years between testaments. We have to back up just a little bit before that. To really understand what was going on. Particularly with the nation of Israel. In around 530 AD. About 50,000 Jews are released. From the control of the Mede Persians. Daniel is in his third regime. He's ruling and reigning with kings there and he has been God's man in the palace men like Ezekiel have been out with prophets with the people but God allows after 70 years of of captivity Jeremiah had written that down and Daniel remembered it that there was time to go back and so around 530 AD these 50,000 Jews make their way back to Jerusalem there's nothing left the walls are down the temple's destroyed All of what they would believe to be their home, their city, the great city of God, is demolished. And over the years, as Nehemiah and Ezra and others worked in 445 B.C., the walls and the temple are completed. Israel's just a small nation. They're fighting for a survival among stronger nations, nations that hate them already. It's around 433 to 424, somewhere in there, we hear the last voice from God. It is the letter called Malachi. It's the last letter. God stops speaking after that point. It comes silent. The prophets have spoken, they have taught, they have given God's word. Jesus himself said to the Jews, which of the prophets did you not kill? Most of the prophets were all brutally murdered by their own people. But here, somewhere between 430 and 420, Malachi writes the last letter. Some of Israel is back in the land, but a great deal of them are spread over captivity. They're uh, in with the Medes and Persians. They're integrating into a very pagan society. They're intermarrying. Their love for the things of God is starting to wane more and more. 
darkness of sin takes an even stronger hold on the world. As we work our way down through time and towards the the birth of Christ, we come to 331 B.C. And this is when the fall of the Mede-Persian Empire comes down. And this comes down at the hand of Alexander the Great. He ushers in this great Greek society. And Alexander the Great, when he brings uh, the fall of the Mede-Persian, he is 24 years old. And he brings with him power and authority. As many of you know, Alexander was the son of King Philip of Macedon. Very powerful ruling nation of themselves. They became stronger and stronger to eventually to overthrow the Mede-Persian rule. Alexander, though, was a student of the great philosopher Aristotle. Aristotle taught a very secular humanism. And that Greek philosophy had been growing and growing with the strength of the Greeks. What started with Socrates was passed down to Plato. And Plato passed it down to Aristotle. And each had their own schools. Each had a unique teaching to it. But Alexander the Great, he was a a great military leader. If you know history at all, you know he was a great military leader. But he was greatly affected by these dark philosophies. And he brought those with him. So when Alexander set out to conquer the world, he brought this integration of philosophy and teaching, a very dark teaching. He brought them with him. And he took an extreme large Uh, an extreme large group of scientists and philosophers everywhere he went as he tried to conquer the world, as you know, teaching this philosophy. The philosophy basically held to unity and equality. Although the upper ranks did not want to share that, that was their goal. And they thought they could do that through a very humanistic teaching. Eventually, this teaching became known as Hellenization. Uh, some would say they were Greekifying the world. The Helen, Hellenistic teaching. So the Hellenistic teaching was the goal to saturate the entire world with Greek culture, with the language, with philosophy. That was what Alexander wanted to do. This developed even more of a pagan world as it brought mythology and everything else with it. And the things that would have been taught, even the remembrances of the things that had happened, floods and And great events that the Bible would have recorded were being pushed farther aside. There were some good things that came with the Greeks. They built a road system and canals. Their communication was excellent. And the New Testament was written in what we call Koine Greek. Now Koine Greek is what we still study to this day because eventually they changed, they modernized the Hellenization, everything. As it went on, finally, they modernize the the Greek language, which is a really neat thing. You do know that, that God had the Greek language frozen in time. So those seminary students in there, and those of us that have studied Greek and enjoy that study to, to help us understand and communicate the word of God better, we study a language that's been frozen. It hasn't evolved anymore like a lot of our languages do. And so we know what it was, and so we are grateful for some of the things that went on. In 327 B.C., Alexander dies in Babylon as he's about to overthrow this massive Babylonian empire. And the kingdom is divided among his generals. Many of you know this. There was originally eight generals that fought for the authority that Alexander had. It was fierce and brutal, and and each had their own views. 
But eventually it came down to two generals, as you remember, Ptolemy and Seducus. Uh, both of these guys had a strong system. It was, uh, one was based in more Aristotle's, uh, uh, in his reign, went to Capernaum and, and into the, down all the way down into the Palestine area, and, and they fought for that, and they, they reigned there for quite some time. But in 320, this Ptolemy I, he took control of both Egypt and Palestine, and he put great pressures on the Jews to get rid of their traditions, to move away from their way of life. He began to implement many systems that led the Jews away from biblical teaching, Old Testament teaching. But the worst was yet to come. After another 150 years or so, in 198 B.C., Antichus III arrives. He's violent. And he arrests the control of Palestinian Jews in that area. And and he brought in the Sadducees empire, uh, which is more of an Assyrian rule. And and they bring in a new shift, a, a whole different way of going uh, as they thought about gods and culture and all of that. And in the middle of this, the Jews are being pulled back and forth, and many of them die during these times. Antichus was more passionate for Hellenization than Alexander ever was. He imposed forced Hellenization on the Jews. It was forced this time. Things were getting darker. The Orthodox Jews opposed him strongly, And they developed this acidic piety group of Jews, this this group that arose. And and as the Jews were slowly losing hold of their culture, this ascetic group fought to keep the truths of of the Jewish traditions, the Old Testament teaching. We know this group, and they're called the Pharisees. When the Pharisees arose, they were called the separated ones. They were committed to ancient covenant They were committed to the traditions, and they were committed to the obedience of the Old Testament, particularly the Mosaic Law. When they started, they were godly men. They saw the darkness that was coming over and the losing of of who God was to this Greek culture that was pushing its way into their lives. And yet, by the time we get to the New Testament, when we study the Pharisees, they are a self-righteous, lording over external living, hypocritical group that hate Jesus. But I want to be clear today. When they started, that wasn't how they were. They started as a group trying to protect what the Jews had, what God had set them apart for. And because they failed to rely on God and on their own strength, we see what they become in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One of the most important dates in the intertestinal period is found in 175 B.C. This is when Antichus Epiphanes arises. He comes to power. Our word epiphany comes from this man. I don't know if you knew that. It means to be manifested. In fact, he was given this name because he and many others considered him to be a manifestation of a god. He, in fact, was titled titled. Antichus, the the manifest God. Many deemed him demented. The Jews uh, saw his radical anti-Jewish programs, and they called him Antichus the Insane. Historic writers that look back at this time 
Many of them refer to him as the Hitler of the second century B.C. Can you see how dark it is? There is very little hope. Things are getting darker as centuries come to an end. He abolishes all forms of worship for the Jews. He has a three-strike capital offense. If you're caught doing one of these three, three things, your life would come to an end. First, keeping the Sabbath. If he found Jews holding the Sabbath and setting that aside, not working, not participating with the Hellenistic society, he would put them to death. If he found that they were circumcised, he would put them to death. And third, if they were found with a possession of any Hebrew scriptures, they would be murdered. It's dark. It's a dark time. During one of the great massacres that he led... He went into the temple of Jerusalem and there he sacrificed a pig on their altar. The very altar in Jerusalem. This was more than the people of Israel could bear. The persecution was so harsh that it created a spirit of revolt within the Jews. In 164 BC we find the Maccabean revolt. Matthias had five sons. And they rose up to protect the Jews from Antiochus. Antiochus was gaining power, and his goal was either become Hellenistic or we wipe you out. One of the two. There was no other choices. Well, this group became somewhat of a terrorist group as they relentlessly attacked these opposers to their belief system. Shortly after Matthias dies, his third son, Judas, arises to leadership. And Judas rides into Jerusalem one day on a white charger. And many thought him to be the Messiah. They sang many of the praises that we see sung to Jesus. They hailed him as the Savior. He fought so fiercely that he was given the title Judas the Hammer. National heroism arose and emboldened many of the Jews against these Greeks. In time, Judas, Judas Maccabees and his followers won back concession. They fought so hard, they won back some concession of religious freedoms, and then eventually the opening of the temple. To this day, they celebrate that as Hanukkah, the Feast of Hanukkah. The Feast of Hanukkah is not in the Bible. It refers back to this time where the Maccabean revolt took place. In 142, the Jews under the Maccabees gained their freedom all the way to 63 B.C. They actually enjoyed somewhat of freedom. Now, when you study this, it's not freedom like you and I would think. There was constant pressure, constant death and, and threats against them. It was not freedom like you and I would say. But in 63, Palestine was once again conquered again, but this time by the Romans. And their leader was who? Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar comes in and becomes the new world leader. He is known um, by Shakespeare, and you know some of these plays, and, and how much Julius Caesar loved his great general Pompey. In fact, in that play, in some of those plays, you can see Shakespeare remember the death of Caesar and, and when Brutus stabs Caesar he staggers over and he grabs the statue you know of, 
of Pompeii, and he dies there at the end of that. All of this, all of this going on, all this, every regime brought something new in, some new form of Hellenization, some new form of immorality. And with the Roman government came extreme immorality. Wicked, wicked darkness came. Under the rule of the Romans in 40 B.C., they appointed a local king, and his name was Herod the Great. And now we're getting close to the time of Jesus. Herod the Great founded a dynasty. He ruled over many people, which include the Jews. He did build, rebuild the temple, and he named it after himself, the Herodian Temple. He spent a massive amount of money on it. It was a massive structure. He did extraordinary buildings. He was known for that, but he is mostly known for his cruelty. He feared his own family, and so he would invite them to banquets, and then once he fed them, he would bring guards in and kill them all because he did not want anyone to take his throne. So a baby Jesus, a king of the Jews, was a threat to him. And we all know what he tries to do there. This puppet king was greatly influenced by two great warriors, Octavius and Mark Antony. Those were his heroes, and he wanted to implement them. When the New Testament begins, the people of Israel are groaning under this heavy and dark rule of the power of Rome. And they have this puppet king who, who thinks he's something and is using his authority to execute sinful deeds throughout the, his kingdom. And the Jews are under this. They're taxed heavily. They're introduced to godless worship. And here they are in the middle of these world powers trying to survive. But it wasn't just the Jews. If you study history, you begin to realize that the entire world was cloaked in a darkness of godlessness. In times when you study that, you almost find, was there anyone who believed in the true and living God at that time? And then you find a young girl. Her name is Mary. And you find a man named Joseph. And God starts with those two. I want to turn your attention after you thought about this darkness to Luke chapter 2. I know you don't have your Bibles with you tonight, but let me read. As you think about the darkness that lays on and think about just the scene, how dark this scene must have been in the fact that it was night. There are shepherds in the same region, chapter 2, verse 8 says of Luke. And they were staying out in the fields and watching over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And it wasn't the glory of the angel, but it was the glory of the Lord himself shown around them. Do you know that? That angel had come from God. And the glory of God himself burst into the dark countryside of the Judean hills. What an amazing scene that must have been. Certainly a physical scene. There was darkness and there was physical light there, but there was such a spiritual scene. And the more I pulled off seminary books and looked at uh, this intertestinal time, I thought, oh Lord, how dark it must have been. And he doesn't come, he doesn't send, God does not send his angels to the elite this Pharisee system that had arose within these dark times, he sends them to these lowly shepherd, probably watching temple sheep that would be sacrificed in the coming Passover that spring. 
And here the angel said to them, do not be afraid, because they were terribly frightened, the text says. He says, for I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Isn't that interesting? For all people. God has always, from day, well, from eternity past, sought to save people from every tribe and tongue. That's been his goal. And the angels knew that. And here he says, I bring good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there has been, there has been born for you a Savior. A real Savior. He is called Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a babe wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, at that point, in this dark country hillside, the glory of the Lord shining off of this angel, suddenly there appeared an a- the, with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. What a message. What a message. Can you imagine these angels? I don't know if when I get to heaven I would have a de- still have a desire to talk to them, but I'd want to know their thoughts. They are certainly not God um, in any way. They are not omniscient, uh, omnipotent in any way. They don't know everything that's going to happen. They're, they're, uh, Psalms 103 says that they're obedient to God in everything, so they do whatever God tells them to do. But doubtlessly they saw the darkness that laid on the land. And I can't help but think that they had great joy knowing they were bringing the greatest message the world would ever see in the most darkest time. Pastor Rick read from John chapter 1, and in that passage it said, In Him, that's Jesus, the Word, the Word that was with God, full equality God, and was God. That, that's Him it's speaking about, was life, and, that he was, and, the, and the life was the light of men. He's the, he's the light that man needs. Bible, the Bible is very clear. We, we need to understand this. We are not born in the light. We're born in darkness. You, you, you must believe the Bible. It tells us that man is born a sinner. He's born in darkness. Darkness was always a word used for sin, used for the rule and reign of Satan himself. And so here comes the one who has life himself. The giver of life also has the light of men. He can pierce the darkness that man has within him. And he does that through pleasing his father. Rick went on to read that the word became flesh. Somewhere in eternity past, the triune God, the father, the son, and the spirit laid down a plan to rescue man even before they created him. And the plan was this, son, you will go to heaven. You will step out of this air of heaven and you will go breathe the dust of earth. And there you will take on humanity so you can die. And you will sacrifice yourself in their place and be a substitute for them. This was their plan. And the word, the logos... The wisdom and power of God became flesh. He dressed himself in humanity and he dwelt among us. That's the study of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're in the book of Mark right now on Sunday morning studying together. We're studying this life where he 
became flesh and he dwelt among us. And John says this, and we saw his glory. You know that glory that reflected off that angel? That was the glory of Christ. He shares the the same nature, the same essence of God. And John says, we saw who he was. We know he's God. There's no doubt he dwelt among us. He's the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the unique one. He reflects to us who God is, and he's full of grace and truth. Later, Jesus said this of himself. He said, I am the light of the world. Now listen to this. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Do you see the difference here? He, he, sets, he separates those who are in darkness and those who are in light. He separates them. He who follows me, follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's truly regenerated you. He's placed his spirit within you. He's canceled out your debt against you. You have the light of life living in you. You cannot any longer consistently follow the darkness that you were born into. You do not belong to that any longer. And Jesus says you are either in the light or you're in the darkness. Doubtlessly, John saw this in the great messianic psalm, Psalm 36, 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. We see light. We see salvation. Well, some might say, well, Scott, it's fairly dark still today, isn't it? It isn't hard to watch the news and watch shooters even on, on bases here today in, Pen- in Pensacola. We, we watch on the news nightly immorality and murder and hate. We see a country very divided right now. Well, we realize that Satan was beat at the cross. Jesus beat him at the cross. The war has been won, but there are still skirmishes going on. And they will happen. He will spread a veil of darkness until the day he is cast into the lake of fire. And so we know he is there. And so Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, don't you know that you struggle not against just flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness. In fact, he uses an article of this darkness, speaking of the rule of Satan and sin against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. We know that it veils truth. There is every religion under the world that denies that Jesus Christ is God. They sing these songs, but they will not sing of his deity. They do not recognize him as God. They may give him some kind of sonship in some kind of human form, but they will not recognize him as God. And so Paul said, even if our gospel is veiled in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it is veiled to those who are perishing. We won't see the light. There are some that don't see the light. I have heard many of you come and say, we've been sharing the gospel. We've been working, trying to let family know the truth. And the Bible says that it's veiled to those who are perishing. And listen to this in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And then he says this, so that they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Later on, he says, 
that the light shines out of the darkness. He uses a phrase right out of the creation story. Just like God spoke light into the darkness and the darkness ran away, so Christ shone into our hearts. And it all started on that night when Jesus came. And so as I thought about this, I thought maybe we needed a little history lesson. It was dark that night. It was dark for a long, long time. And, and if you go back in your biblical history and work backwards from Nehemiah and Ezra, it wasn't very good there either. In fact, you know that every king of the northern tribes of Israel never was a godly man. You have to go back to the days of Solomon to find the kingdom united and loving God. For years it had been dark. But Jesus would not let them go. He came and he pierced darkness. The light broke the darkness. And Christ became the hope of glory. And so on this Christmas, as this is our banquet, we usually use this to kind of kick off our celebratory season here at Riverbend. It is a great reminder. It's a great reminder. You're going to hear of darkness before you get home. If you turn the radio on, you'll hear of darkness. Well, there is one who can break it. There's one who has broken it. And for many of us in this room, our faith is in the light of the world. Jesus Christ. Because he took that step, left heaven, obeyed his father, dressed himself in humanity so he could die and save us from our sins. The Bible says there's a Savior coming. When you read Matthew, when you read Luke, he came. He pierced the darkness. I hope you're encouraged by that. Um, it is a history lesson of somewhat, but it is to, it's, it's good to know that there is one who can beat darkness. He's beat it for us eternally, for those of us who believe. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, please, we beg of you to pick up a Bible. Go read the book of John. Go read the book of John. Deal with Jesus yourself. See what he says about himself. And see if you can deny the light that he has to share. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you that you laid down a plan before time began. A plan that was not brought up by us. We did not come up with this idea. This was yours, God, and that's why it's perfect. This beautiful triune God devised a plan to, to put darkness to an end eventually. And we know there is a day coming when the Lord Jesus return and he will become King of kings and Lord of lords and he will rule forever. And darkness will be put to end eternally. And we will forever Stand in his light. But Lord, till we, till we see that time, Lord, we ask that you would cause us to cling to the light. And, and even now in a season of giving and celebrating and joy that Christmas brings to so many, may we as Christians take time to remind ourselves of this great light that broke the darkness. To remind our children and grandchildren and friends and spouses and neighbors that that manger scene is a lot more than just wood and straw and a, and a humble beginning. It is our only hope. It is the only hope to beat sin. Because sin brings death. But Jesus brought light and life 
So Lord, we thank you for this season. We are grateful for it. May our hearts be brought near to you. May we love you more during this season. As we hear songs sang, may we think of the theology as Rick reminded us. And we think about the incarnation of Christ. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to do what we could not. Lord, teach us to love you more through this season, Lord. Thank you for this night. Thank you for everyone out here. Thank you for all those that did all the work to feed us, to set up. Lord, please bless them for that care they've shown us tonight, Lord. And give us safety as we turn. Bring us back Sunday for a great day of worship here, exalting the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we sing and say and do here. We praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.